Star Sports are proud sponsors of the Politics Home podcast. Politics Home have partnered up with the UK's leading luxury bookmaker, Star Sports, over the election campaign to bring you all the latest odds and market movers in the political betting markets. So head over to www.starsports.bet, that is www.starsports.bet, for all the action, all the news and all the odds. Be gambleaware.org. 18 plus. Hello and welcome to the Politics Home podcast. I'm Matt Honeycomb-Foster, news editor at Politics Home. So Boris Johnson has finally unveiled the Tories' steady-as-she-goes election manifesto. Is he at risk of boring voters? Are Tories now fighting on Labour turf? Or is this very smart politics after the debacle of the 2017 campaign? Plus, whatever happened to the Lib Dem bid to get Joe Swinson into number 10? As the party bumps along in the polls, we'll ask what it's up to and what its new message is to the country. Then our chief reporter, Alan Tolhurst, gets out on the campaign trail with the man hoping to unseat Boris Johnson himself. Delighted so we've got two excellent guests with us this week. We've got senior political reporter at Business Insider, Adam Payne. Welcome to the pod again, Adam. Oh, thank you very much for having me back. It's a pleasure to have you here. And uh, digital political editor at The Sun, Natasha Clark. Hi. Hey, Natasha. Thanks for having me. Always a blast. Right, so let's dive straight into the Tory manifesto. Um, Tash, Boris Johnson unveiled this uh, pretty slimline document yesterday. What was his kind of key message to the country? Well, I think we already did know the key message to the country before it even came out. Uh, get Brexit done uh, and unleash the country's potential. No, I am not a, a Tory propaganda <laughs> uh, minister here. Um, that's what the title of Boris Johnson's manifesto was. But like you said, it was very steady as she goes. Um, basically telling us what we already knew, that the Conservatives will get Brexit done by Christmas and will pump in more money into the NHS, uh, schools, police and other priorities. So Adam, were there any kind of rabbits out of the hat here in the Tory manifesto, anything the PM had up his sleeve for us? Well, it was a very small hat, wasn't it? It wasn't, <laughs> not a lot of room for rabbits in that manifesto, there was not a great deal in it. I think, obviously where he did go into some detail was the NHS. I think the Conservatives have made the calculation that as well as delivering Brexit, um, putting some money into the NHS is what the public wants to see. I was, one thing I noticed while skimming the manifesto was the pledge to bring back the nursing bursary. Um, I think that came as a bit of a surprise. I don't think it was briefed at all. And obviously the Conservatives, it was the Conservatives who scrapped the bursary for training, trainee nurses, sorry, in 2016. And it, I think I'm right in saying that the, the number of students applying to take up nursing courses decreased significantly since then. Um, so that, you know, that was a, a rabbit in the hat, um, rabbit in the hat, I think, and a U-turn as well, which, which is um, always notable. Um, but I, yeah, apart from that, I mean, it was a very safe, straight bat, nothing even remotely eye-catching. Um, and I think we'll come on to this perhaps in the next few moments, but I think that's all part of the plan. I don't think you wanted... Um, conversation to be light, to be you know, initiated across the country about this manifesto. I think he wants it to be a relatively low-key um, low key affair. We saw a big push on taxes as well, with the PM committing himself to a new triple lock, not to raise income tax, mm. VAT, or the other one I've forgotten. National, what is it? National insurance. 
or national insurance. There we are. Did the accidental national insurance promise that Boris Johnson seemed to kind of blurt out on the campaign trail last week take some of the oxygen out of that announcement? Perhaps, yeah. I think, but at the same time, we were discussing it before we started recording, I think up to now, what are we, a fortnight into this official campaign, the energy's been quite low, I think. Um, and, it, and I don't think it's unusual for leaders, parties, to kind of reveal some individual policies before the full text itself comes out. I think the decision to hold the manifesto launch on a Sunday afternoon, kind of most people are doing other things on Sundays, perhaps watching the football or whatever. And and I think that set up, that pointed towards a low key affair where perhaps wasn't a lot a lot of energy. Tash, did this feel quite low energy to you? Actually, I really noticed a change in Boris's tone on on Sunday. I thought he sort of spoke a little bit with a, a lower sort of tone in his voice, um, but actually then went on to sort of give it a bit more welly in terms of the way that he was speaking and, and his sort of general demeanour on the stage. And obviously he was in a room full, full with his cabinet and lots of Tory supporters, so it's no surprise that they were chanting Boris, Boris, as he <laughs> went in um, and laughing at all his funny jokes, you know, like, oh, Corbyn used to be indecisive, now he's not so sure. Um, but actually, I thought it definitely did see a bit of a different Boris than we've seen so far. It's not quite the David Cameron rolling up his sleeves moment, but I feel like we were getting a little bit nearer to it as I was watching it uh, on uh, Sunday. But yes, like you say, it is a very steady as uh, she goes approach. It has been a very safe manifesto uh, so far for the Tories. This is all part of their strategy. You know, Boris is soaring ahead in the polls. He's doing really well. Um, if we look at Labour as well, who got a poll bounce after their 2017 manifesto launch, mm. we haven't quite seen that in the polls that have come out since Labour's manifesto was launched last week either. So Labour unveiled its kind of radical big spending manifesto um, last week. There were a few spending pledges in the Tory plans yesterday. How do the two kind of compare? So essentially, uh, for every pound extra that Boris Johnson wants to spend, uh, Labour wants to spend £28. That's according to uh, uh, sort of uh, experts and uh, and analysts who have sort of looked at the amounts uh, that both parties will spend on day-to-day spending. So basically, Boris has said he'll spend around £3 billion extra. So some of that will be extra tax revenues coming in and some of it will be extra sort of money spent on giving tax cuts. For example, the national insurance uh, cut that was briefed out last week. Compare that to Labour, who won about £83 billion worth of day-to-day spending extra. It's a huge, huge gap. We were expecting in this manifesto Boris to, to you know, splash the cash a little bit more. But actually, when you th- you know when you compare the two, it's clear that Boris is, ca- is continuing to try and go for that sort of economically strong and stable we are the party of the economy we will spend a little bit more but don't worry you can still trust us with your ec- with your economy and your finances adam was there anything that struck you as potentially coming back to bite the uh, bite the pm because obviously you know mm. theresa may saw the uh, so-called dementia tax her plan for social care kind of blow up in her face in 2017 well as you said it really did blow up in the first in her first into it was a disaster i can't really spot anything that's got potential for such catastrophe but I think on social care the manifesto doesn't really offer a detailed strategy for how they're going to deal with that I mean obviously Brexit is the issue of the day climate change is increasingly important in the eyes of the public and the politicians but social care it's a it's a big social crisis how, how are we going to deal with this when we have an aging population perhaps I think the lack of detail on that is something his op- his um, opponents will uh, will go out and but secondly I do think I hate to bring it back to Brexit but <laughs> this pledge to not extend the transition or implementation period as ministers like to call it this pledge not to extend that beyond December 2020 
is it's another do or die. It's another die in the ditch. It's something, you know, to, I think we might talk about this a bit more depth later on, but giving yourself 11 months to negotiate a new free trade deal, have it ratified in every regional and national parliament in Europe is a big ask. It's a really big ask. And I think in a few months' time, um, I think it's completely possible that Johnson does backtrack, backtrack on that pledge. Adam's mentioned the B word, so let's just let's just I'm do very this. Sorry. So, so look, Tash. Um, one of the big promises the PM made yesterday was to bring his withdrawal agreement bill back before Christmas if he um, ends up with a, a conservative majority. Um, do you think he can squeak it through in those few days we'll we'll have back before Parliament goes off for recess? Presumably, presuming it ever does go off for recess, we might be here till the end of time. Yes, I guess it depends on um, whether Boris wins uh, a majority or not. Um, Number 10 have said today that they aim to bring Parliament back on the 17th of December and have a Queen's speech on the 19th of December, which obviously gives us only a few days before Christmas to sort of get everything done. I definitely don't see Brexit uh, you know the entire Brexit bill getting wrapped up in just what could be a day or two before Christmas. What might happen is they could bring back, uh, the, you know, the bill to Parliament and say, "Look, we we brought it back like we like we said we would." I think that's that's as far as they promised. I don't think they promised to get it completely done. However, the way that Boris has been speaking has sort of been hinting, "Yes, well, don't worry, we'll get it all wrapped up." So it's not the Brexit box set you'll be watching uh, over Christmas. I think he said something like that at the weekend. Um, but yeah, I just don't see it. So don't see it all getting wrapped up uh, by the end of the year. I think this is probably going to be dragging on into 2020 and, and potentially even, even uh, you know, once we get there, we've then got to start the trade deal talks, which, as we know, are going to take uh, many months and possibly years. Yeah, Adam, you mentioned the um, the vow not to extend the implementation mm. period beyond December 2020. So this is the period during which the UK broadly follows EU rules and we're closely aligned to the bloc. Um, it's currently due to expire in December 2020. That was part of the original talks that Theresa May oversaw. Um, but it's now in the Tory manifesto that that won't be extended. Um, is it realistic to think you can negotiate a, a post-Brexit deal with the EU in, in just one year? No, it's not realistic. Of course it's possible, um, if we believe in Britain sufficiently, <laughs> perhaps. Which we all do on this podcast. But, but no, it's, I mean, let's... Um, I'm going to have to... I'm, I'm going to thank the Institute for Government, our friends there. I took a look at the some um, material they've published recently. If you look at deals EU struck with other third countries recently... Its agreement with Ukraine took 10 years to negotiate, with South Korea, nine years, Canada, seven years. Even TTIP, which is at the lower end of the scale in terms of duration, that was three years. And it's not just a process of negotiating the trade deal. You then need to get it through the UK Parliament. You need to get it past European Council. Um, And because it's a trade deal and not Article 50, you need a unanimous agreement in the Council. You then need to put it to national and regional parliaments in the 27 member states and people who followed the EU's negotiation with Canada two or three years ago know that Wallonia, a region of Belgium, actually held up negotiations between the EU and Canada. So what I'm trying to say is this is a big ask. This would be unprecedented, I think, to complete negotiation um, in that time. And also, I think I'm right in saying that the UK government actually has to notify the European Union as to whether it wants to extend transition by the summer. It's not by Christmas time, it's by right. the summer. So if we return to Parliament in January, we'll very quickly find ourselves in a new big Brexit debate about whether we do want to extend transition or not. 
Tash, um, we heard plenty of times during the uh, kind of tortured debate pre-election over Brexit that, that no deal Brexit had been taken off the table or variously was on the table. Does this um, seemingly immovable transition period deadline now mean where, you know, no deal is, is very much back in town? Well, that's essentially what, what Labour and, and some of the opposition parties are saying, that no deal is, is back on the table and it could happen as soon as uh, the end of 2020 uh, if basically they decide not to... Uh, extend the transition period. Um, obviously, that, they've put that in the manifesto as well. It's worth noting that they've said that we will not extend that. That's a promise that Boris Johnson has, has decided to put in writing. Um, although, obviously, let's take a look at some of the other promises, including <laughs> leaving on October 31st, which uh, we're still waiting for, Boris Johnson, I'm afraid. Um, but yes, it essentially does mean that no deal is still on the table. Um, obviously, the no deal preparations were stepped down after we missed that deadline, but they're still sort of going on low level in the background, and I'm sure they would be stepped up again uh, up till. Um, January the 31st which is technically the new deadline um, you know but, but Boris has obviously got got time he has got six months um, while, while it would be completely unprecedented to sign a free trade deal uh, as he wants to do it uh, in the short time that he's got possible uh, it, you know it may be potentially possible that he might choose to just go for a very bare bones uh, agreement basically just saying this is what we intend to do or this is what we think will happen or, or this is what, what sort of we're aiming for uh, to try and get around that. Adam, why do you think the PM is making essentially another rod for his his own back here? It seems like an incredibly difficult mm. thing to do within that that time frame. What's the electoral advantage in making this pledge? Well, I guess when you analyse what and we've talked about it, get Brexit done, and that whole policy is based on the idea that getting Brexit done is no longer being an EU member state. Once we leave on January thirty uh, first, if it is that date, we will no longer be an EU member state, and that's the standard at which Johnson is, is holding Brexit to. Um, let's not forget, as you said, he said that staying in beyond October, staying in beyond Halloween would be absolutely unacceptable, but then suddenly, oh, no, it's not actually that, that unacceptable. <laughs> this is why, you know, and here's why. I do think with Johnson, he has this kind of... He's able to... He's got a record of making these really bold, uh, no ifs, no buts promises, going back on them, and then being able to navigate that situation, being able to get potential opponents, perhaps Conservative MPs, who would have really gone for Theresa May over this behind him. Um, I think if he, if he delivers Brexit in January, as he's promised, I think he will ride an electoral wave on that. And I think if we do have to stay in the single market customs union for another two or three years, I think him and his team will be confident of explaining that away. Tash, um, have you been surprised by how little Brexit seems to have featured in this campaign so far because obviously the conservatives have repeated this mantra of get brexit done but we haven't really seen any major clashes over britain's departure from the european union it almost again feels like we're on a kind of domestic spending pledges type campaign yes absolutely i think the issue with brexit it not really being a Brexit election, is that we already know the policies that each party leader has on Brexit. Apart from maybe you could say Jeremy Corbyn saying last week that he would campaign neutrally in a second Brexit referendum, which is obviously a new thing from him. Um, but it doesn't really change the whole party's policy. Labour said that they will remain, um, you know, they will 
uh, fight for a new Brexit deal and then put that back to the people in the second referendum. Boris Johnson has said he'll push his deal through, a, 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 you know, by the end of December. We already know the Brexit positions. There's not really a lot that we can talk about here. Obviously, Boris is keen to get on to the subject of Brexit because he likes to highlight the fact that Jeremy Corbyn is this, you know, Prime Minister dither, as this new poster said today, um, you know, and, and he's not picking a side. But at the end of the, at the, end of the day, we already knew uh, what all of the party policies were on Brexit already. And so therefore, the attention naturally turns to, well, what about after that? What are you going to do next? Obviously, you know, with a new prime minister, everybody wants to know what Boris Johnson's actual plan for the country is. Um, he's actually obviously been saying this for about six months since he actually ran to be party leader, that he wants to focus more on NHS, on schools, on crime, uh, on, on those sort of, you know, key pillar priorities. Um, but yeah, I don't think it's a huge surprise that Brexit is a, a little bit off the table, even though it actually would be much better for Boris if it was a, a much bigger issue. Now, after the bruising experience of 2017, um, polls probably should come with a health warning, but we cannot resist checking in with them. Um, Adam, what are the latest polls showing us? And maybe let's have a talk about how that would translate in terms mm. of seats. Well, I think, obviously, we should we should take it with, with some salt, but one thing most polls agree with each other on is that the Conservatives are on course for a majority the question at the moment, if you do believe the polls, is how big is that majority going to be? Um, I think at the weekend, I think I'm pronouncing this correctly, Data Praxis, is that how you pronounce Sounds it? Sounds right it's to me. It's fantastically fancy, isn't it? Uh, they um, ran what we call an MRP forecast, which MRP seems to be this new trendy, really uh, trusted form of polling at the moment. And uh, I think the Sunday Times published that on Sunday, and it put the Tories on 349 Labour on 213, Lib Dems on 14, SNP on 49, and then obviously seats scattered towards the much smaller parties. And what would that look like? It would be a, a comfortable Tory majority. It would be a fantastic performance of the SNP in Scotland uh, on 49. I think 14 seats of Lib Dem Democrats would probably be disappointing, um, given some of the things we've said about how well they're going to do it in previous weeks. Um, so at the moment... Polls suggest that Johnson is on course for a victory. That's why he's playing such a straight bat, not taking any risks. It is worth pointing out that YouGov is publishing its own MRP projection on Wednesday evening. And of course, it was YouGov, YouGov's MRP model which produced that um, memorable, actually, that really memorable prediction of a hung parliament. And I think that was about, was that about a week before the yeah. election. And suddenly yeah. everyone was like, whoa what is going on here. So a lot of eyes will be on what YouGov is going to say. I think it's at 10pm on Wednesday evening. Um, Tash, it doesn't really seem like Labour's making much headway in the polls. Um, we've already had the campaign launch, we've had the launch of the manifesto, we've had a couple of leadership debates now. Is there anything they can still do to, to pull this off, do you think? It's hard to see uh, a Labour majority. I think we can all be agreed on that. Um, I think it depends uh, a lot on it, whether tactical voting sort of does take off in this election. Obviously, we see it in every election. Everyone goes, you know, you've got to vote to keep the Tories out. You've got to vote to keep Labour out. Um, but this election is obviously divided much more than just the parties. It's divided sorry it's divided um, among you know whether you voted to leave and whether you voted to remain whether your candidate voted to leave or whether they voted to remain 
doing and what they are promising. Um, so we, if we could, if you know, uh, a lot of people across the country decide, actually, yes, um, I think that voting tactically for the Liberal Democrats is the best way to stop uh, a Conservative delivering Brexit in my area. Uh, and if we see that across the country, uh, then it definitely could sort of increase, I think, certainly Labour's chances and probably the Liberal Democrats as well and sort of take a few seats off the Tories. Um, but yes, essentially, we haven't really been seeing uh, too much movement. Even the Labour manifesto, which we sort of expected might move the polls a couple of points up uh, for Labour, hasn't really dented it. I guess what we're seeing is that most people have already made up their mind about who they're going to vote for um, and we won't be seeing any surprises in the next few weeks, we hope. Adam, Tash threw the uh, Lib Dems into the mix mm. there. Um, they don't seem to be achieving the breakthrough they'd hoped for. At one point they were talking about Jo Swinson as, as Prime Minister. They've put her front and centre of the campaign. What do you think's going on in their campaign at the moment? I think there's multiple things that... I mean, I have been following the Liberal Democrats for quite a few months and I have been out canvassing with... I went out with Luciana Berger last week, for example. And I think there's a few things to mention. Firstly, it's not unusual for an election campaign the smaller parties to be squeezed by the two parties. That's quite a... That's not an unexpected development, and we have seen that in the polls to some degree. Um, secondly, I think the revoke... This idea that Swinson is going to be Prime Minister and then we're going to revoke Article 50. Um, I... As I said, I went out canvassing with Luciana Burge last week in Finchley and Golders Green. Um, and it's worth saying she went down very well on the doorsteps. I think she's going to really improve the Lib Dem vote in that constituency, whether they win or not is a different question. But even for some Remainers on the doorstep, you know, I was there and some of them said, hey, look, I voted Remain and I'd like to remain, but this revoke policy I feel quite uneasy about. Um, so I think to an extent it can be an alienating mm. um, alienating policy and interestingly Chuck Ramuna the party's foreign affairs spokesperson this morning gave a speech and um, I actually tweeted some of the lines earlier this morning now the party is talking about stopping Johnson getting a majority um, if we can't do that we're going to make it as small a majority as possible they're not talking about Swinson being prime minister anymore this is about look Johnson's going to be prime minister at this rate help us give him um, the smallest mandate the smallest mandate possible Tash, have the Lib Dems over-promised during this campaign? Uh, in terms of revoking Article 50, I think it's obviously, you know, becoming Prime Minister. Yes, certainly, that's, that's definitely telling, you know, voters something that they know they can't achieve. It would absolutely be such a huge swing for the Liberal Democrats to win a landslide. And I'm not saying it's, it's not possible, it absolutely is, but it is a little bit misleading to say, yes, I can become Prime Minister, yes, I can deliver uh, your dreams and, and stop Brexit. Uh, absolutely. Um, but also the Liberal Democrats um, have sort of been focusing on Brexit as their main sort of policy. I think that's also crowded out a lot of their other um, policies, like, for example, uh, putting a pe an extra penny on income tax to pay for the NHS. I think it's a very popular policy from the Lib Dems, but it's just not got mm. enough airtime. They haven't really been hammering any of their domestic issues uh, home enough uh, in order to sort of make it an actual impact on, on the polls. Adam, do you think Jo Swinson herself will face pressure to go or will come under scrutiny if the Lib Dems go backwards mm. at this election? What a question. Well, it seems like last week she was a uh, med leader. I think what I mean, what do we mean by going backwards? Because uh, the Lib Dems, did they win 12 MPs at the last election? Is that the number? 12? Since then, they've acquired nearly a dozen. About eight, is it? Eight or nine? Um, but by acquiring these MPs, these defected MPs, they've kind of um, fabricated a, 
a high bar which isn't true. So, for example, Angela Smith has joined the Liberal Democrats and Antoinette Sambach. So they're now Lib Dem MPs, but are they going to win in the seats where they're standing? I mean, probably not. They wouldn't like me saying that, but probably not. Um, I think for the Lib Dems, to be honest, if they can add to their 2017 total, let's say they're going to get 25 seats, which in the moment is possible, I think. It would be double what they got in 2017. I think that would be a good result. Um, will God? Thing is with with Joe Swinson, I think even if the party doesn't achieve what what it set out to do a few weeks ago, um, who who'd replace her? I mean, Ed Davey basically agreed with her on absolutely everything during the leadership contest. The other MP who's often talked about in regards to the leadership is Leila Moran, but she has said has has um, she herself has said, look. I was only elected a few years ago. I want to focus on my education brief. And then outside of that, I mean, Chucker, Amuna, if he wins... I mean, I'm not sure. Will she come under pressure? I'm, I'm, I mean, I've been wrong many times, and I'll probably be wrong <laughs> many times again uh, in the next few months and years. But I, I, I don't think Joe Swinson will resign if the Lib Dems don't win 40 seats, for example. She, she probably won't. You're probably right there. There was an interesting bit of research. I think it was in The Times. There was a poll last week which said the more that people see of Joe Swinson, the less they like her. I think that sort of thing will probably worry the, the party mm. as a whole. And, you know, they slapped, her, they slapped her face on the side of a bus. They've made her really the face of their campaign and they're not doing well. She'll definitely face some pressure to go. But as you say, who's going to replace her? There's no, there's no leading candidate. Fortunately, the same can't be said about any of us three, right? The more you see us, the more you like us. Yeah? Right? <laughs> Absolutely. Guys? I endorse that message, yeah. Thanks. As election night upsets go, unseating the Prime Minister has to be up there. That's exactly what 25-year-old Labour candidate Ali Malani is trying to do in Uxbridge. I'm with um, Paul Holmes' chief reporter, Alan Tolhurst, who's been out on the doorstep with um, Ali. What's his pitch to voters and how likely is it that he's actually going to unseat the PM, do you think? Well, I think part of it is essentially his own personal story. Um, he came to the UK when he was five years old, lived in a uh, sort of single-parent household and a council estate. You know, he's also pitching himself as very much a much more local candidate. Boris Johnson obviously was sort of parachuted in in 2015 um, to take a seat when he returned to Parliament. So he really is sort of p- uh, pitching himself as the antithesis of Boris Johnson. Um, um, you know, the Prime Minister has the smallest majority of any sitting Prime Minister for almost 100 years. Uh, 5,000 votes and Labour have been targeting this. It's one of uh, Momentum's eight unseat target seats. Um, so they've been pouring activists in there. Uh, the morning hours with him, there weren't that many, but still it was a pretty professional team and they seem to be uh, working the doors pretty hard. And, you know, it's... Um, it's a remarkable kind of contest for him, really, you know, to try and, uh, he called it, it would be a uh, Portillo moment times 10. Um, I think it would be more like Portillo times 100 of what it could create. Uh, we've done some campaigning with the BMA, with the Junior Doctor Strike, so kind of been involved locally with local campaigns. Um, and I just got a call from someone going, like, wouldn't it be an interesting story if it was like a young candidate, a local candidate, yeah, an immigrant? Yeah someone from a working class background he was just and this person on the phone was just like it's just too good a story not to give and originally I was like no way I'm not doing it um, but 
I spoke to some young people in the area and they were definitely like, you have to do it. And so when I stood for the campaign, it was it was more of a, can we get more young folks in the hustings? Can we get more non-traditional people that don't get involved in the selection campaign so that they can influence yeah, yeah. whoever the candidate does you, end up you need, being? You need, you need votes to flip if you're going to win exactly. a seat. So you exactly. need to... And you need to engage the younger folk in the area. You need to get people who aren't registered to register to vote. Because um, the way that we win in this area is getting everyone to register. If everyone in this area voted, yeah, yeah. we would win, yeah, no yeah. doubt. Um, and just in the course of this election, it just that story kind of just took on a life of its own, and it's kind of gone on into the campaign now, where people have really like, it's amazing, put all their hopes and dreams. And, like, <laughs> I, get, I get messages online being like, the entire country, oh my god, is depending on you. Um, so, um, but for me, it's kind of embracing a little bit of it, going, you know. As we saw in the, one of the questions that was asked in the debate, the, our politics is in such a toxic space. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's in such a divided right. space. If someone who came to the country at five years old, grew up in a council estate, um, lives and in a story that isn't unique to people, that most people here will, will connect with, if that person can go on to unseat a sick prime minister for the first time in history, I think that is reason for us to be hopeful again in politics. And so, like, that's... That's as cool an opportunity as anyone has presented. So did you get the sense he was um, in it to win it? I, I do. I think that he... Sometimes I think he looks at the scale of what he's actually trying to achieve and also what it would entail actually defeating the Prime Minister. And I think that probably is quite daunting for someone who's only 25 and not been in, involved in politics for, for all that long. Um, I do think that if he, his ground game was clearly very good. They, they have a lot of professional people with him on all the, sort of the door-knocking stuff and he's clearly been out pounding the streets for, for almost a year now. Um, so I think, he, you know, he does have... A good chance. He seemed to be pretty sincere in his belief that he could win it, and, and obviously on paper, you know, he does have a chance. Um, but you know, when it comes down to it, I think it is such a big thing to try and take down a prime minister. It, it's whether he, um, it's whether he can get over the line and, and, and get those flip those enough votes to, to do so. Um, did you get the sense of any any Tory nerves about this seat? I mean, it would be an extraordinary moment, wouldn't it? Well, you know, I tried to speak to a lot of the sort of local councillors and a lot of them didn't really want to speak about it, whether they'd been told by CCHQ or whatever not to uh, not to talk to the press uh, about it, I, I don't know. But I wasn't getting a lot from them. And obviously he is relying a lot on um, Hillingdon Conservatives and, and their councillors who, who are, you know, a lot more kind of active on the ground. Speaking to, you know, people around Boris Johnson, I, you know, they think that he's he's got a good record as a, as a good local MP um, and obviously one of the key issues that I found uh, on the ground was the local hospital which obviously is one of the ones which uh, the Conservatives are pledging to pour more, more money into and upgrade um, it was described as one of the, the, the worst sets of NHS buildings in London a while ago and so you know that's a big key issue that I'm sure on the ground um, the Tories will be pushing Look, we are running a campaign that we think we can win, no doubt the numbers show that, the polls show that we can definitely win here, but if as part of our campaign, we're able to inspire a bunch of new people to get involved in politics. Like I've said, new other people to run. Uh, that in and of itself would have been success as well. So um, it's pretty amazing. Put a lot of pressure on yourself. <laughs> no, it's an opportunity, man. Like, um, like I've always said to people, like, um, it just happens to be my name on the ballot. It's the work. Look, like, it's all the work of this lot. Um, and as as of anything, I'm a person, so I'm flawed. <laughs> I'm not perfect. I'm gonna make mistakes. 
Um, first time candidate and all that stuff. First time candidate, I'm making up as I go along mostly, learning new things. So, in a way, I don't feel, I don't feel the pressure as much because the people I'm with recognize that, that you know, I'm not the traditional candidate. Uh, and I have seen firsthand how like kind and forgiving people are. So, and I'm confident we can win. I'm just, the, the one thing I am really nervous about is like, if we do win. He's also got the backing of Momentum, the pro-Corbyn kind of left-wing grassroots campaign. Um, what other seats are they targeting? Um, one of the other key ones they're looking for is Ian Duncan Smith's seat uh, in Chingford and Wood Green, um, which is uh, has a much smaller majority and actually seems the more likely to fall. You know, often these sort of um, campaigns to uh, unseat big hitters are often some, sometimes seen as sort of vanity projects rather than being very likely to happen. Obviously, you know, 5,000 votes in Oxbridge and South Ryslip is, is not insignificant. It is still a sizable majority. It just happens to be a lot smaller than, than most prime ministers would get. So hence why they're sort of targeting it. Um, you know, I do think that in this situation, you know, on the ground, he does seem to have a lot of support, Ali Malani, and it's very hard to reconcile the idea that this 25-year-old first-time uh, candidate would be able to defeat a prime minister. But then at the same time, you know, I didn't feel that there was a great deal of support. I was up in the north of the seat um, towards Oxbridge, which is a much more sort of Tory stronghold, and there still didn't really seem to be that much support for him from people I spoke to. So, you know, we can't just assume simply because he's the prime minister that he will just have a, a sort of incumbency and get those extra votes. But so, you know... It, it's very much sort of heart versus head in this situation and, and it could be a very interesting night uh, down at Uxbridge uh, uh, on December the 12th. Right, we have just got time for a few uh, listeners' questions. These tend to range from the sublime to the absurd. We've got some very specific ones mm. this week, though, so thanks very much. These guys are, are worrying as we speak. This is from Twitter user, and I'm going to maul the French here, Citoyen Ravocateur. That's really good. Thanks wow. very much. Thanks. Well done. Does so. This is presumably the Tory manifesto. Does the Tory manifesto provide a full costing of Johnson's Brexit deal? In air quotes. No. Um, the Department for Exiting, Exiting the European Union actually said in an FOI response a few weeks ago that um, it has no plans to produce an ec- economic impact assessment of the deal, and um, th- th- there is no such thing, no such thing in in the manifesto. I think Sajid Javid as well said that the that the deal provides benefits that just can't be measured on a spreadsheet. <laughs> it tran- <laughs> transcends <laughs> transcends what we have available to us. Um, yes. Surprising that they managed to do it for other deals. Clearly, Theresa May's deal. However, the mind that. boggles. The mind boggles. So, Tash, I'm going to ask you this one. If you don't get it right, it's fine. Richard asks, just Richard, no further details, asks, how off is the costing on the Tory manifesto? And then there's a little bonus question. Also, how much will the deficit increase year on year with Tory figures? I have to admit, Richard, I did spend quite a lot of time reading the Grey Book yesterday, uh, but I don't know how off the costings are. 
Uh, however, the Institute for Fiscal Studies, a very respected think tank, uh, will be delivering their briefing later this week. So hopefully they'll be able to say a little bit more about what they think about it. Um, however, Paul Johnson, the IFS director, was pretty damning about, um, about the sort of manifesto uh, as it came out. Uh, basically saying that it's not very ambitious uh, and and isn't isn't basically that great. Uh, so if it's if that's anything to go by, uh, I don't think we'll be seeing a hugely positive endorsement from the IFS on Thursday. There we go. We have successfully outsourced our thinking to the IFS. I'm afraid that is all we've got time for on the Poll Home Election podcast this week. We'll be back on Thursday where we'll no doubt be digging into that YouGov poll, which may have provided a shock or confirmed all our pre-existing beliefs in the meantime please do keep your questions coming into at politics home and you can sign up for our free seven day a week breakfast briefing by going to politicshome.com forward slash register thank you very much to natasha clark and adam payne for joining me today (laughs) 